Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Monday, September 14th. That means it is Mental Health Monday. We'll check in with Deaconess Heidi Gaiman here in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. It is time to check in with Deaconess Heidi Gaiman for Mental Health Monday. Good morning, Heidi. Good morning. Great to be with you guys. I feel very like kind of chipper for a Monday, which is like, I don't know, maybe (laughs) I think I had a good mental health weekend, you know, like I read a really good book, which my husband always is like, if you're reading, generally, you're doing pretty well, which is a nice gauge. And then I also got into nature. And so I just Mm. I feel really great today. I thought I'd share that with you all. Nice. (laughs) Nice. It's it isn't it is nice when you have time to read a book or enjoy God's creation. I could see how that could be refreshing. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've talked about Absolutely. that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we talk about that and try maybe. to get people to do that for their mental health. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know what else? And maybe is I good? should take my own medicine. I mean, <laughs> a good hobby can help with that too. You know. Hey, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Check That's out the true. hobby That's series. That's true. In some play, some, some play. play. Do you know how much and... that keeps coming up in the hobby series? Like. The, I, all the I'm time. really stoked. Yeah, play. Well, that's good. I want to hear some insight on that sometime because I'm writing a Bible study for LCMS Youth Ministry on play. And so I'm really excited to help get, you know, a usable resource out there about how we go about putting that into our lives. Today, we're going to talk about shame. And so that's maybe a little different than play. <laughs> But, you know, all these things are interwoven and that's one reason they keep coming up time and time again. I think all these different, I I don't think they're like buzzwords or catchwords, but they are consistently part of our mental health, if you will. Mm -hmm. So shame is on the docket for today and you had Mm -hmm. some some personal questions for us today (laughs) and i looked at them then i felt shame because i didn't have answers for them (laughs) oh no no (laughs) No. never the intention though yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so where do we begin with when it comes to shame Yeah, so today we're going to work on kind of defining shame and defining autonomy. So this is the developmental stage that we're talking about today, which is autonomy versus shame. And it's the second stage of development in Erickson's theory of developmental stages. Uh, And just a reminder for the listener that I believe pretty firmly that not only do we go through these stages when we're small, but that they come back to us. That's one reason we're talking about this today is that I think this one makes it really clear and all of the research that we've heard on shame, I think, recently in our culture and in media that's come out from psychological and sociological research is that we know that these things pop up again and again and again. And so shame and autonomy is really related to our free will, our free will. And as Christians, we can especially appreciate that concept of free will because we have a doctrine of it. You know, we have some solid ground to stand on when we talk about free will. And I do think it's helpful for us to understand that a large portion of shame, maybe not all of it, but a large portion of shame does come from our experience of what is free will and how do we interact with it on this earth. It's a a very spiritual concept then. We understand that shame has not only spiritual connections, but at its heart, it is spiritual. 
when we experience shame in our lives because it's connecting us to that gift that God has given us of free will. And so God did not make us robots, right? That's that's really important to the doctrine of free will. He he didn't create robots. He didn't create puppets sometimes we say, but as Andy uses the phrase regularly by God's creation grace, by God's creation grace, by those first article gifts, he created us with this thing called free will and we get to make choices. And that's a huge part. And so just to get us started before we dive into what is shame and defining that a little bit more and how we experience it related to free will, can you guys think of a time when you were like, whoa, I have to make a choice here, or I get to make a choice here, a time where you are aware of your free will, if you will. Sarah or Andy? <laughs> we were talking about this before the show, trying to figure this out. And <laughs> I have I have a few examples, but I think one of the, the most uh, influential or one of the ones that really stuck sticks with me is uh, when I was deciding where to go to college, uh, because, you know, as 17 or 18 year old, you don't really know what you're doing with your life. And I had decided to go to one school to do this one degree program. And I was all registered and I had my classes picked out. And then last minute, I was like, you know what, I don't want to go here. So I decided to go to Concordia and completely changed my degree and going away from home instead of staying at home. And this it was it was this huge decision for a, a young person. But I remember feeling like I had the uh, the the uh, the, the power to do that. And then it, it, mm -hmm. I could do that. Yeah. My parents I love that. I love how you freaked out though. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> that does happen, but it is that moment in our life where we realize we have a certain amount of power, which we often in mental health terms call agency. It's this ability to make choices that there are choices available. And you can imagine if you were a person who hadn't um, had the support you needed when you were going through this developmental <laughs> developmental phase uh, between the ages of 18 months and three years ish. But you know, it's very flexible on either end to be able to believe that you could make some choices on like whether you're going to have, you know, cereal for breakfast or a granola bar. I know it sounds really <laughs> silly, but, or that you could put your own pants on and choose a red shirt over a pink one, you know, things like that uh, really lay the foundation for us to believe that we can make really big meaningful life choices eventually without carrying the weight of shame that says I should have done this, or I am not the person to make this choice. I, you know, I need to listen to other people. And, and you can see how there's a healthy variance in all of that. But at the same time, I think our young adults experience this a lot when they do change their mind, because that's a really common thing in young adulthood. Uh, but when we don't allow them space to have a little bit of power in that, and, and that life is going to be okay when we change our minds. And sometimes that may not have been a good choice, but God is there to catch us when we fall and all of that good stuff, uh, then the shame comes in. And so I, I think in that example of college, and I had a very similar experience there where I was completely <laughs> registered at a different school and ended up at CUC. Uh, but <laughs> The, that's really empowering. And then as we make big choices like that, we start to walk through life where there's more and more and more choices because we're adults. Like <laughs> that's really the work of adulthood is making choices. So I don't know, Andy, do you have one before we go on? I can think of a very concrete example and many have probably experienced this when you realize you have the free will to decide to wash both the darks and the lights in the same load. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do that all the time. You that have, is mind blowing. You have the free will to do that. But then the shame comes when you have to wear a now, what, pink pair of socks uh, <laughs> yeah. because there was something red in the load with the, the, the whites. And then you end up with just pink laundry. So, yeah. Right, right. Exactly. So it's kind of a silly example, yeah. but at its core, yeah. we are making choices all day long, right? We are making choices all day long. And so we are utilizing our free will. Does Jesus care if we wash whites and darks together? No. But if we hold on to a faith that holds God to this kind of concept of free will, where every single choice we make like that has huge implications in the kingdom of God, can you feel kind of the shame that comes in just as I say that? Because we're like, what if I make the wrong choice? And then we're really not living in the freedom of Christ. You know, I think God cares deeply about everything in our life, but he has very few opinions about it past believing in Christ as our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer and our Restorer. And so I think that that's a really important place for us to be when we define shame. What is shame? Um, shame comes because we all will mess up in this realm that we call free will. We all <laughs> will make mistakes. We all will make poor choices. We all will make less than great choices or a choice that was maybe okay, but wasn't the best. Um, and so shame comes in and, you know, social researchers have a really interesting definition uh, where they separate guilt from shame actually far better than the church does, I think. And, and actually, if we read the letters of Paul in particular and his letter to the Corinthians, um, first and second, we see a little bit more about this. So Paul separates it into godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow um, and, and guilt being this godly sorrow that has some movement that we learn some things in. Um, um, and that is guilt that leads to confession that leads to, um, you know, of redemption. And then worldly sorrow is, is shame that comes in and it doesn't move. It sits in us. It's Satan poking at us and telling us we're no good, uh, that we have no worth. Uh, when we know Jesus Christ came and died for us, like we have worth because the God of the universe died on the cross for us. Um, and so that's the difference between guilt and shame. And I think the church, honestly, that's part of my biggest work that I do is researching this is helping us define this a little bit better in the church. And so social researchers say it like this, um, guilt is something I did something wrong. You know, I did something wrong. It's a concrete thing. Whereas shame is I, um, am wrong. There's something wrong with me as a person, as a being. Um, and it, it hurts our sense of self, if you will. And so I would also propose that I think shame is over internalizing the brokenness of the fallen world. Like basically, I think we take on this thing where we broke the world. <laughs> like we're the ones <laughs> who messed up the world. And that, I mean, there is a nugget of truth in that, right? Like Adam and Eve. Yep humankind messed up the world. But at the same time, I don't have to carry that around with me. And that's one thing that Jesus dying on the cross says to me is that that's not my burden to carry. Um, and so shame then, as we make choices throughout life, will come at different times. I think to some degree, living in a broken world, shame is quote unquote natural in that way. But at the same time, it's not of God you know, shame is of Satan. Uh, because we have Christ Jesus in our life, we live in a different space. 
And because Christ Jesus came into the world, people can live in a different space. And so what once we um, would be ashamed of, or we might use shame in our culture in order to teach ourselves lessons and to teach those around us lessons, because Christ is in our lives, there is no place for shame, scripture says. In the same way it says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, um, no one's ever going to come to Jesus because we save or we shame them. And we are never going to experience the grace of Jesus because of shame in our life. Instead, that's the work of guilt in our lives. That's the work of guilt. So I think it's just really important distinguishing those two things and understanding that, yes, are we guilty? Absolutely. Uh, we've been guilty since that fruit in the garden. Um, I'm guilty in my own self and I will make terrible choices. But at the same time, I don't have to carry the weight of everything. And that's the difference between guilt and shame. Does that make sense, you guys? Absolutely. We yeah. are looking at, we're unpacking a definition of shame today on the Coffee Hour Mental Health Monday with Deaconess Heidi Gaiman. We have more to talk about. We'll look at autonomy here in just a moment. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. How do I keep my kids in church? Will there still be a church for them to go to? New people have moved into my neighborhood. How do I reach out to them? Our challenges are many, but it is Jesus who makes disciples for life through his church. Let's come together as the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to discuss this joyful work. Learn more about the Making Disciples for Life initiative at lcms.org slash making disciples. Again, that's lcms.org slash making disciples. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Mental Health Monday, talking with Deaconess Heidi Gaiman. Today we're discussing the definition of shame, the relationship of free will to shame, and where are we going from here? Autonomy is next. Is that right, Heidi? That is true. So the inverse in this developmental theory of shame is autonomy. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we don't always have choices in life, right? I think it's so easy, and especially in mental health realm, to blame everything on choices. Like, oh, we made bad choices, and now we're in this pit that we found ourselves in of addiction or of, um, you know, things of injustice and things like that. So it's just important to remember that this is a developmental stage theory and not all shame is about choices we make. It is about that thing we talked about right before the break a lot of times, which is the world is broken. You know, it's really messed up. And so if I have grown up, especially in a place of privilege, like I have as a, a white woman, uh, grew up middle class in America, I have to be really aware that my choices that are available to me have been a lot different than a lot of other people. And so just being aware of that brokenness of the world and how that impacts also 
all the things that are available to us is a really important place so that we don't put shame where we um, never intended it. So yeah, autonomy. Autonomy is that acknowledgement and awareness of our free will. So being able to look at the world and it's that experience that Sarah was just talking about uh, of you know making a decision about college or and he was talking about even doing the laundry is this awareness that comes to the surface that's like, oh, I could I can do what I want in this situation. I'm not underneath uh, a parent's authority in this particular thing, or I am now my own person, or like even with little kids, that the world that I live in and the family that I live in gives me some authority, some autonomy in my life to make choices for myself. Um, and so that's like in a really important thing to build within ourselves so we can believe that we can make some choices. Um, and so shame begins developmentally uh, when we first become aware that we have free will, I think, because of that brokenness. And that's why it's really foundational that we teach our children these spiritual concepts that they need a biblical foundation when they're tiny. I mean, this developmental stage, you guys, is 18 months to three years. We need to be teaching our toddlers that, yes, you're going to mess up. But there is a God who loves you that offers you confession and forgiveness. And he is is writing the story of your lives. He is bringing redemption into it, even when we choose poorly. So that's a really foundational thing that we can teach our little ones. Um, we want them to, of course, memorize things like the Lord's Prayer and uh, even maybe some of the confessions and absolutions in our uh, liturgy and things like that. But we want to also be continuously having an ongoing conversation with even our littlest people about what mistakes are, what is curiosity, um, and how is God working uh, when we mess up? That's really, really important. So um, Andy, I see in the notes that you said something about love and logic. I want to hear a little bit more about that. Well, I, I think this is the, the foundation, one of the foundations of love and logic, uh, which mm -hmm. was a, a program for parenting teaching skills to, to parents in terms of uh, understanding the development of their children and particularly um, mm -hmm. giving them, uh, in, empowering them to make small choices in the early years so that they can be good at making choices um, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. choices have bigger impacts in, in the, the later years. So yeah, do you want yeah. to brush your teeth first or put on your pajamas first? Uh, yeah. giving them choices in the, the smaller things so that they then have that some sense of, of autonomy, uh, some sense of, mm -hmm. of, of free will and, and choices to make um, without a lot of consequences uh, in the early years. Sadly, uh, yeah, yeah. Love and Logic was one of the, the companies that, um, that I know. was lost because of uh, COVID, because of the the impact of the uh, economic impact of COVID, but uh, a lot of that great resources true. there. Still a lot of great books out there for love and logic. So, yeah, I was going to say, pick up a book. They have a lot of good foundational books about parenting those real young kids. And I think what you're seeing through that is what they've researched, that there there is a place for authority, of course. Um, and scripturally, there's a place for authority with children, but there's also this place of, um, helping them learn that autonomy. And it is a learned thing. I mean, we don't know we have it unless someone has given us space to discover it. And that's where curiosity comes in, right? So autonomy, 
is really also then related to curiosity. Is there space in my life or in my child's life to explore? Is there space to ask questions? Is there space to make choices? Um, and so autonomy is an internal belief that we're capable of making choices which we build through going out into the world and, and testing our theories, right? It's like basic scientific method here <laughs> of, hey, if I touch the hot stove, am I going to get hurt? And, and I think this is where uh, the concepts of different styles of parenting come in, really important uh, to understand sitting in the middle, which uh, is authoritative, not too much authority over your child's life, giving them some of those like teeth brushing pajama questions, um, as well as not too much helicoptering, not too much like standing over them and waiting for them um, to mess up or to do something. Instead, giving some safe spaces for exploration. And so this is something we can do with very young children, you know, letting them explore in the backyard uh, that has a giant fence if there's a highway, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things or exploring at the playground and be able to climb some stuff while mom or dad or uh, babysitter or whoever stands somewhat close by, you know, making some places where they can um, engage in the world world. Uh, sensory tables are very common in this age in preschool classrooms and things like that because they need to explore in curiosity. The question is, as adults, how do we also need to explore then? How do we go about our uh, life and our workplaces and our scholarly endeavors and in our neighborhoods and believe that we can explore? Uh, that's one reason, you know, even living in America is really awesome because we believe in laws, you know, we have some things to protect us, but we also don't believe in over making laws where we can't go anywhere and do things. Um, and so we have a lot of freedom of exploration here that maybe some other people in different countries don't have. And so we can embrace that in our neighborhoods and in the places and spaces we live. You know, how can we make our workplaces and then also our churches places where people can explore and where they can be curious. Is it okay to ask questions? Because if it is not in our churches and in our workplaces and in our families, that's when shame comes in. And that's something we do not want in Jesus Christ. He can handle our questions. He can handle even our doubts. Um, the place we want to come to is Christ with those things in our lives. And so I think that, you know, balancing our our natural man, if you will, our flesh with God's spirit inside of us is really, really important. And even as we go interact with people who don't have belief, who don't have saving faith, who don't know who Jesus is, when we exist in such a way that we are wrestling with those two things and doing it honestly, I think that's the space where people are going to find out who Jesus is a lot better than if we just told them. Um, now, of course, there's always the place where we just need to tell the gospel, but being honest about what that looks like in our lives is a really powerful thing, a really powerful thing. You guys have any thoughts on autonomy here, Sarah and Andy? <laughs> Curiosity is one of my favorite things. Um, and I think that it's actually 
been uh, even more of a thing in adulthood and probably with the age of the internet and Google and being able to literally ask any question that you want uh, to your phone and you can find all these answers. It's it's a, such a freeing thing to be able to uh, just explore whatever you want to explore. Uh, but you're talking about um, being able to ask questions in different areas of life. And, and I'm thinking about how I ask questions, you know, in, in general life or about nature or about my neighborhood or history, and then asking questions in a family setting or in church mm -hmm. setting. And I do approach those in different ways. And now I'm thinking about that and will mm -hmm. consider why I do that and, and how I can maybe change that. Yeah, I think being aware of uh, the safety of those different spaces, that's what we do for young children, right? Like we don't send them out into the street to play uh, street hockey at age 18 months. Like it's a terrible idea, <laughs> right? But instead, that's a place for the backyard because uh, we we want all kids to play hockey. That's a very exciting thing. <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> right, right. But, but that's everything that you're talking about. Even the technology stuff that you just mentioned, Sarah, is really important. Like, I think we misjudge the fact that uh, Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or all these places are the safest places for us just to ask all the questions and explore all the things. When in reality, maybe a little less safe than our family setting. Um, it's the same reason if all we ever do is go to church and hear a sermon, that's a really good thing, but we will not feel safe in asking questions because sermons aren't question-friendly spaces, right? Our, our worship services aren't designed to stand up and say, hey, pastor, I have a question. Um, and so we also are intended to engage in the life of the church in these other ways so that we can have that space for asking questions. And that's, I think one thing that happens for a lot of believers is that they miss that opportunity. Um, and then we're not wrestling with our flesh and our spirit um, in the body of Christ together. We're, we're leaving that as a private and a personal thing. And and that's not God's thing. That's like an American idea, I think, built into our heads. So, hmm. yeah. Free will, Whew. shame, autonomy. <laughs> Insightful. Thank you, Heidi. Always good to chat with you. Thanks for joining us for Mental Health Monday. Thanks. I'll see you next week. And we'll talk more on shame and mental health in particular and how that works in our identity in Christ. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Zion National Park is Utah's first national park. The official park tour guide explains how Zion Canyon got its name from the Bible, specifically Isaiah 2, verse 3. The guidebook reads Pioneer Isaac Behunin. Leafing through the book of Isaiah one evening was struck by the way the setting sun's last ruddy light hit Red Arch Mountain. The name came to him by epiphany, as he skimmed through Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and 
and let us go up the mountain of the Lord, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. The name was adopted by the National Park Service when they officially established the park in 1919. Engage with the Bible and its impact on history, culture, and art. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.